Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Power Motor Yacht Podcast, your birth for the best stories in boating. Each week, my colleagues and I will bring you everything from salty stories to thought-provoking trend discussions, as well as interviews with the most interesting characters to ply the sea. Whether you're listening from the boatyard, your slip, or hopefully well underway, we're glad to have you aboard. This week, I sit down to talk boats and boating with one of the most interesting yacht brokers I've come across. Matt Howard was a Marine and helicopter pilot of the presidential helicopter Marine One. He also studied yacht design at the prestigious Westlawn Institute. He's a certified boat nut who recently purchased his dream boat. Without further ado, here's my conversation with my friend, Matt Howard. All right. Matt Howard, welcome to the podcast. How you doing, Thank sir? You. Pleasure to be here. Right, so, so Matt, we've uh, known each other on and off for a little while. You are currently a broker with United Yacht Sales, correct? But you're also one of the most one of the most avid boaters I know, and you got a lot of interesting stories. I like to kick things off with, how did you get into boating? Is this is this something you were born into? Yeah, uh, it, it was. Um, so when I was a kid, uh, we lived in in Boston, and so this okay. is uh, I know. I'm dating myself. This is the late '60s, but mm-hmm. um, my dad was looking for a way to get us out of the city mm-hmm. for for the summers and so forth. So he started looking around and ultimately purchased a, a piece of land with a boathouse on it on Lake Winnipesaukee in New Hampshire. And this would have been when I was uh, I don't know four or five years old. And so we were spending weekends and pretty much all summer up there. And then he somehow I don't I don't exactly know how it happened, but he got he bought a 1946 Chris Craft Sportsman, a 25-foot mm. um, uh, a boat from a local yard, and he just got completely bit by the old boat bug. So we, in yeah. turn, and it just it just kind of got into the blood that way. So he, mm. for years after that, he was buying and selling various boats, and we'd always have something in the boathouse. We always had something to knock around in. Like as mm-hmm. kids, we had a I don't know what it was like a I don't remember the brand, but a but an old beat up little uh, catamaran with a 25 horse, you know, white and silver mercury from the 1940s or whatever that wow. we used to tool around. And so that was just that was those memories, even though it was only the summertime, really mm-hmm. are some of the most prominent memories to, to this day were those times spent on the water um, with the family, with friends. And that's that's where it started. And it has never <laughs> it has never left. Isn't it amazing how some of those childhood memories just have a ripple effect throughout your life? They're they're the strongest, Dan. Yeah. They really are. And we sailed too, so we we uh, we didn't have a sailboat to begin with, but our neighbors had a uh, an Alcourt minifish, which, believe it or not, is a smaller version of a of a sunfish. We learned okay. to sail on that, and uh, and then eventually we we bought an old uh, Comet class sailboat that we sailed around the lake. So I the power and sail thing wasn't something mm-hmm. I gravitated to one or the other. It was just something right. that I, I just thought it was normal as a boater to do both. Which right. Right. Well, no, it's not really the case, but that's the way I came up. So, and I, I learned from an early on point in time that it's the magic is being on the water. It's not really, it really doesn't matter what kind of boat you're on. It's, it's being out there on the water. And that's where the magic is. So I, yeah, those, those memories are, are what drive or is a real driving force. Wow. Well, well said. So moving on from your childhood, I, I know because we're, we're Facebook friends, I know that you're also a, a proud Marine. And so I was hoping maybe you could, you could touch on that experience a little bit. Was that, was that, I mean, were you a young man? Were you right out of school when you joined? 
Yeah, so I, um, it'd be a long story to, to go through the whole thing. We, we don't have time to go through all of it, but ultimately mm -hmm. I, I ended up going to the Virginia Military Institute, um, okay. which, so I was on the, um, I graduated high school in 81. Okay. But didn't go to VMI until two years later, because I would say I was on the, um, what the hell am I doing plan? <laughs> okay. As far as I spent a year at a, at a, at a military prep school in New Jersey, uh, mm -hmm. which is now no longer there. But then I spent a year at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, which was, mm. which was fun. But it was a year <laughs> of my life pretty much wasted because uh, I just wasn't. I didn't know where I was going. Didn't know what I was doing. But I. But but the military thing had always been in the back of my mind. Mm -hmm. My brother, who was 18 months older, um, was at Chapel Hill UNC, and he was in Naval ROTC. And he actually ended up going to flight school and becoming a, a naval flight officer. You know, a, a backseater. He was a, uh, he was an ECMO and or a backseater in the EA-6B Prowler um, in the Navy and did a couple deployments off the West Coast. But as he was going through flight school and all that, I was sort of, it was sort of piquing my interest. And we have a, 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 history, a military history in the family, prominently uh, Navy. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I took a tour of VMI and realized I, this is this, I know this is going to suck here. This is going to be a hard place to be, but this is what I need. Yeah. And then um, sort of dovetailing with that, ROTC you got to pick, you know, which, which you want. And I thought I was going to go Navy and really gave it a lot of thought, decided that I want to, um, I wanted to try the Marines. And I, and I couldn't tell you Dan exactly why that is. I just, mm -hmm. and I think it surprised my dad to a degree. He just kind of figured out going to the Navy too, because sure. he was a world war two era uh, sailor and, and also in Korea, but that that's, I just ended up going to the Marine Corps. I think because, um, you know, if I was going to test myself, I wanted to go the whole, nine I, I just wanted to do it um and do it the hard way and yeah. see what happens and the flying bit was was in my blood my dad um was a private pilot and my dad or my brother was was in so i just kind of gravitated to the aviation side but mm. uh long-winded answer to your question so i was commissioned uh second lieutenant marine corps in when i graduated from vmi in uh, 87. okay and then, uh, if you don't mind touching on your your path to becoming a pilot, because that that was a, a pretty fascinating stint in your journey. Yeah, so I, I so I, I just for whatever reason um, I, I had a, a decent aptitude. You know, you take some written tests. I know they're a lot different now because this is back in the Stone Age when I was doing it. But <laughs> you take some some tests to for them to try to figure out are you are you uh, are you likely to have a chance at succeeding in flight school? Because you know they spend a lot of yeah. money on it and they don't want to. Use, send you down there and, and get you part way through. But I did well on those tests and I got down to flight school and, um, you know, luckily I, I didn't have any air sickness problems. I, mm -hmm. I, I was a, a pretty good learner. I was able to fix stuff up. I, the, the uh, you know, the monkey skills of flying a plane just kind of seemed to come naturally to me mm -hmm. for the most part. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, that's, I got winged in 1989 and then, um, I don't, yeah, I don't know how much you want to get into, into the rest of that, but that's, that's how I became a, that's how I became an aviator. Well, I think I, the, the, the point I, I'm personally really interested in is you were, you did a stint as the pilot of Marine One, the, yeah. the presidential helicopter, correct? Right. Yeah. And which, so, which president would that have been? Was that Bush? So it was sure. the ta tail end of uh, Clinton's uh, okay. time in office. I was a co-pilot when he was there. And then um essentially about the time that bush came in i was in the marine one syllabus and became a marine one pilot while he was in office and did it for another whatever it was 18 months and then um 
and then departed the squadron. So the, the path to get there was, hmm. um, it was it was a question of timing. I was just kind of in the right place at the right time because uh, I, I when I started my career, I, I obviously I was in a flying squadron, and then I went to our uh, the Marines have an aviation schoolhouse, sort of the Marines version of Top Gun, is in Yuma, Arizona, and I was instructor there mm-hmm. for three years, and then I went back. Um, into the fleet and to another squadron. And at that point, when I finished that tour, I was a young major, just promoted to major. And the things you're supposed to do are go to school, um, do some kind of ground job, do something because the Marine Corps wants you to be well-rounded. And I had people mm-hmm. telling me, you should do this and you should do that. But a long time ago, a mentor of mine told me, you know, the Marine Corps is going to get its pound of flesh out of you no matter what you do. So do what you want to do. So I sort of ignored the professional advice and I just wanted to fly. I, I really had no interest in in doing those other things. And at the time, as a young major, my options were getting limited. And HMX, the, the presidential helicopter squadron, I was in an ideal window to apply because I, I had the requisite flight hours, um, had a decent reputation. And so I, I threw my hat in the ring and got selected to go there. But it was just a question that the timing was right and um, my experience level was right. And that's how I got into the squadron. And that was what that was. That was in 99. Okay. Yeah. And then from there, it's just you spend time in the squadron and getting used to flying multiple types of aircraft, which is something the typical, you know, guy or gal in the fleet doesn't have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but there are times when because the, the two executive helicopters, the so-called the white tops, the, the 60 and the, the H60 and the H3, those aren't out in the fleet. So when you come into HMX, you have to learn how to fly those, which takes mm-hmm. a little while. Um, but long story short, a couple a couple years into the squadron, I just gravitated on through and became a, a Marine One right before the last, uh, I guess it's the last the last two years and spent the last two years in the squadron uh, doing that. Wow. That's that's pretty amazing. I know it's you're, you're humble, but it seems... That seems like an amazing honor. It was an amazing honor, and I don't, I don't, I don't belittle that at all. It was a tremendous, um, a t- tremendous privilege and, and an honor to do that. And and one of the things I remember is when one of the first times President Bush came aboard, mm. um, he he said, I said he came, they, he comes into the cockpit briefly, and I said, welcome aboard, Mr. President. He said, it's my honor. And I thought, oh, wait a minute, no, 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 <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 it's our honor to to, yeah, to yeah. do this, you know. But it's just uh it was a, it was an amazing uh tour it was an amazing time uh lots of travel um 9-11 was a was a very hectic time as it was for everybody uh, mm-hmm. not just us but uh, i loved it i mm-hmm. i really i really i i thrived on it and, and enjoyed the time doing that and um it helped that i was still single at the time mm. so i it didn't matter you know whatever you know you got a call you're going to egypt tomorrow okay yeah, because you, you always got always have a bag packed, and you always have, um, you know, your uniforms ready to go. So you're basically at the whims of the travel, the White House's travel schedule. And you really never know what that's going to be mm-hmm. from one week to the next. So you just sort of react. And uh, yeah, so I was, I was, it was mostly a lot of fun. Sometimes not, but mostly a lot. Of fun. So uh, I mean, that's amazing. It's a it sounds like an amazing part of your story. And one of the things I wanted to ask, it seems like. Like, how had, did that experience prepare you for your current role as as a broker? I mean, I have to imagine you don't get nervous 
when showing somebody a boat. I mean, when you had such a stressful, <laughs> such a high priority job, it's yeah. like, oh, I got to travel to Florida. I mean, yeah, that must be yeah. nothing for you. Well, uh, that's, you know, it's interesting you say that. I'm not, uh, I'm not an extrovert by nature. Okay. You know, I, I would rather get my teeth pulled than go to, a, say, a cocktail party where I really don't know anybody. But mm -hmm. if it's about boats, I mean, I'm okay since, you know, that, that upbringing as a kid. But um, becoming a broker was, I don't, it, I don't, it wasn't really a, something I had envisioned. Mm -hmm. uh, but I knew that halfway into my Marine Corps career, about the 10-year point, I knew that, well, thought I knew I wanted to get out of 20 years and go do something else. Because God bless them, the guys and gals that stay in 30 years or more, I mean, by the time they come out, they look like they're 80 years old. And, right. and they've just been, uh, it's just, and I, I, I didn't want to become that person. I wanted to go do something else. I knew it was going to be boat-related. Okay. I didn't know what. Actually, I studied um, yacht design and naval architecture. I was with the Westlawn Institute of Marine Technology's uh, yacht design program. And I, I toiled away at that for probably six years. And it's all by correspondence. Wow. It's all yeah. self-paced. And I got halfway through the program. Then I realized I'm basically 90 days out from leaving the Marine Corps. And I'm thinking, what, what the hell am I going to do? Mm. You know, here's the date that the Marine Corps no longer pays me. And, and I, I really don't know what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. um, but my my stepping stone, the bridge to becoming a broker was I, I took a contracting job in the Pentagon once I got out of the Corps into a job um, in the aviation department of headquarters Marine Corps that was basically doing stuff that I was doing in uniform only as, you know, wearing a suit instead. So it was a very easy transition. But I realized really early in that job that if I if I don't take some type of proactive step to get out of here, and I'm going to be one of those 70 year old dudes, you know, carrying a sandwich in a in a paper bag that you see every day, day after day after day. I didn't want to do that. But I had I had purchased a boat in 2000 fr through a guy who was with United Yacht Sales, uh, also a retired Marine. He was a platoon commander in Vietnam. And I, I stayed in touch with him since the year 2000. I was still on active duty. And he would, he would touch base with me every now and then. And I became known, you know, in the squadron life and then and after. I was the boat guy. So somebody who was interested in boats would say, hey, you know about boats. I'm in, I'm interested in this, and yeah. and I would just sit down and talk to people, you know, until the sun ran out of hydrogen on, on whatever whatever they wanted to know about, and whatever yeah. I could share, whatever I could. Uh, and I told this broker that year in, uh, after a couple of years went by, and he said he paused. He said, "You know, man, people people get paid to do that." And I thought, "Oh, okay." <laughs> so I so maybe this whole idea, but sales, I, I can't, I don't, I couldn't envision myself in being this in the sales business. I'm just not. I just don't really didn't really feel like I was that type of guy. But then yeah. as I'm toiling away at this Pentagon job, the, the biggest fear, Dan, was how do I how do I just walk away from a paycheck and go into a commission only life? I mean, that's a big that's a big leap. And one morning, my, my wife came down and I was sitting there in my suit and it's dark out and I'm going to a job I don't want to go to. And she said, you know, defense contracting, it seems to be a pretty lucrative way to be unhappy. And I thought, wow. Oof. well said. Yeah, it was, it was the perfect, it was the perfect, it was the sort of the, the, the nudge that said, look yourself in the mirror and take the leap, which, which I did. And that's, that was, well, I, I started doing it part-time in 2009. And, and so now I'm, I was getting ahead of myself a little bit, but um, I came on with United Yacht Sales in 2009 and have been with them ever since. And, um, but getting back to your question, which was like half hour ago, <laughs> nothing about being a pilot really prepared me for 
becoming a broker, but but what did was just a lifetime in, in boats. So okay. I, you okay. know, when I became a broker, I was what, 45, 46 years old, a little older. And I think it was just kind of a natural transition for me to get into something which was a passion for me since I was a little kid. If I can help other people get into this life, then sign me up. And I, I really did some soul searching about, all right, what, what is it that I'm really trying to do in this business? And I, I really thought about that for a long time and I came up with it. And, and simply put, I'm in the business of helping people create the best memories of their lives. And, 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 I, and, and when you put the right, you put a person or a family into the right boat at the right time, as long as they're fully prepared, they know what they're getting into and they're not over their head, you know, financially or, or otherwise, that's exactly what happens. And I don't know, I don't know how to put a price on that, but, w- but when all that stuff comes together and, and that magic happens, I, I would, you know, I just would rather be doing nothing else because it's a very special, I mean, you know, I mean, you, your lifetime and boast yourself, it's, there's something very special about being out there and to tap into that in my life history and, and becoming a professional broker and helping other people get onto that path. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's tremendously rewarding. I love it. That's, that's amazing. I mean, what such a good answer. And, and you know, I don't, I know I don't know you terribly well, but I know that that's true. I know you're not, you know, you're not a guy that's into the the hard sell. And, and I, mean, oh. I can tell you're somebody that, you know, really is, you know, selling the lifestyle. That's, yeah. that's, that's the biggest probably arrow in your quiver, I would think. That's that's exactly it, Dan. And, and I've had this conversation with a lot of people who, I what 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 I learned early on, and just when I when people are well, I, maybe I'll become a broker too. It sounds pretty lucrative. And I said, well, understand something: um, no one needs a boat. Good okay, point. unless you're a commercial fisherman, or you know, you're working yeah. on the water. You, you obviously need a boat. But so if you're coming from home sales or car sales, or or if you've had a profession, you've had a career in a, in a profession doing something that is related to those types of things, you need to realize that the pressure tactics that work there do not work mm-hmm. um, on, on boats. And I, I tell sellers and buyers look, that any boat, if it's in good shape, in other words, if it works and it's clean, it's going to sell itself. And, and if it's priced right, it's going to sell itself to the right person at the right time. And any amount of pressure, oh, if you don't make an offer, you're going to lose out, you know, this and that. No, that just doesn't. I don't fundamentally. I don't think that's correct, and and more to the point, that's not my style. Uh, as you yeah. as you've, yeah. you you sort of discerned. I don't. I mean, there's there's no there's no reason to push people or to try to use pressure tactics. And and along that lines, I I take whatever time it takes. You know, if somebody comes up to you at a booth at a boat show, if they say, "I might buy a boat one day," what can you do for me? I think, well, okay, and I'll have a discussion. But if somebody walks into that booth or sends me an email and says, "Hi," My name is so and so. I'm retiring and gives a date. I have a plan to buy a boat. This is my approximate budget, and I want to go do the loop or something like that. Then I think, okay, this is a genuine prospect. And I don't care if it's two or three years down the road, because ultimately, if they do buy a boat and I've been able to spend that time helping them, they're going to be so much more educated yeah. at, at the end of that time that they're going to and they're going to be in a position to to uh, to have a good time. So um, once again, I'm going off on a tangent not sure how i got there but no uh, no you're 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 not yeah. and the the last part of your broker story that i want to touch on before we get into your recent purchase is i'm glad you i'm glad you brought up the westlawn experience because 
I got to think of all the things that set you apart in the broker world. I mean, how many brokers have experience with the at the West Lawn program? Did that just round out your boating experience? Yes. Yeah, that's a great. That is a great point, Dan. I, you know, when I entered that program, I, I think what I was thinking at the time was, well, I'd like to become a naval architect slash yacht designer. You know, I'd like to follow in the footsteps of the Hargraves of the world or a younger guys, a rock star like Doug Zern, who, mm-hmm. you know, couldn't draw an ugly boat if he tried. Mm-hmm. Those were sort of people that I really looked up to. And, and I love the blend of art and science that goes into a boat. I mean, you can make a boat that's tremendously seaworthy and the ugliest thing you've ever seen. True. And you can make a boat that's beautiful yeah. and and doesn't perform worth crap because it's just not designed right. So, yeah. All, so that... I did get far enough along in the program to understand the basics, both sail and power. Um, boats stay up to, you know, 60, 80 plus feet. Mm-hmm. What really makes them tick as far as the hull design? I mean, I can look at a line drawing and understand, you know, what that means. And, and further to the point, I can help somebody now. I can help somebody understand. You see, the, you see, you see this shape. You see this line. That's, it's, that's shaped that way because it's trying to make the boat do this. Meaning the boat's going to be good at this, but it's not going to be good at that or whatever, just for an example. But yeah, 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 it's a great point. And having that knowledge of hull design and uh, both sail and power, when I when I go look at a boat, I mean, my mind already has a pretty decent idea of what that boat is about, what it's good at, what it's not good at, and puts me in a better position to to advise, to educate and, you know, just answer questions from a potential client who's maybe going to go look at that boat, whatever. So, yeah, it was a. I didn't plan it that way, you know. Right, there's what right. you plan, and then there's what happens. But oh yeah, uh-huh. Dan, this is all part of my plan. <laughs> I'm going to study naval architecture, and then I'm going to I'm going to stop, and I'm going to become a broker. Now, that's not how it worked out. But in retrospect, yeah, yeah, very very helpful. Well, I think I think your brand is you know is authenticity. I mean, you clearly love boats. You're you are like you said a boat guy, and that you understand boats. You know, from a design perspective, it, it's so much different than. You know, some brokers, not many, but some just know that boat they're selling. They don't understand the full package of, of how it runs, why it runs, what boating can bring to your life. So I think just having that well-roundedness uh, is very cool from an outside perspective. Yeah, thank you. I, I do too. It's fun. So let's let's dive right in. I think the most interesting recent part of your story is after years and years of helping people find the right boat, you began searching for the right boat for you. What is the experience like looking for a boat as as a broker? What was that like? It was interesting. I'll tell <laughs> you, uh, it was really interesting. Uh, first of all, it was really odd buying a boat as as a buyer, not a broker. And uh-huh. and I let I, I, uh, Bill Walzak with um, in Annapolis had had the listing, and he's a great guy. I've been around forever, and I I said, look, you're you're the broker. I'm not going to try to co-broke this thing with you. I'm just the buyer. So you. You know, you do your thing, and I'll do my thing. And, I didn't and, realize that. And and he he did a great job. We we had a smooth transaction. Uh, it was difficult for me not to you know put my broker hat on, but but having the knowledge that I had just made me a better, more informed you know client buyer. Right. But getting back to your question about how that happened, so we we've had a we've had a boat for twenty years. I bought a Donzi thirty three in in two thousand, wow. which nice. has been a fantastic boat. I've trailered that thing from as far south as Sarasota and, and up to New Hampshire, back to Lake Winnipesaukee, it's been out to Kentucky um, because that Donzi crowd is, 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 a, is a pretty, um, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a fun-loving tight crowd and, and they, yeah. they hold these, you know, these rallies and so forth. Anyway, 
we've had Ebo for such a long time and had such a great time with it. But now, you know, we're not we're not interested in doing poker runs anymore. We have a dog. We've we've got this wonderful six year old golden retriever over here, and the boat's just not suitable for for a dog like that. And it's just and and not just because of that, but because wouldn't it be nice to step on a boat that had I don't know air conditioning, or wouldn't it be nice to step on a boat that had headroom? Wouldn't it be nice to just be able to get on the boat with the dog and just be and go, yeah. you know, cruise around? The particular the particular boat that we were looking for ultimately was what we got. Single engine, mm-hmm. kind of traditional look with the downy style of something we've been parcel to forever. Yeah. Um, and so that that was sort of the type. But when I saw this particular boat, this Wilbur, <laughs> I thought I'm. I'm think I think I'm out of my mind, but I think we're going to make a run at this boat. And Darcy and I talked about it. And the two things about it that really went against professional mm-hmm. advice that I've given people for a long time is that the boat's forty years old, forty-one years right. old. Right. That's not a, that's not a red flag, but it's a okay. It, do you know anything about that boat's life? And if the questions, if the answer is no, then there's 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 an amount of risk there that you have to mitigate or at least understand. And then secondly. I've always told people this bright work, all this varnish is beautiful, but if you buy something like this, you're a prisoner to that for the rest of your life, or, or you pay thousands and thousands of dollars every year for, for somebody else to do it. Sure. And so this boat had both of those things, went against uh-huh. both key tenets of professional advice I've given people over the years. But there was something about this particular boat that when we saw it, we, we both came to the conclusion pretty quickly that if we don't make a run at it, we're going to be sorry. Mm-hmm. We're in. So mm-hmm. I'm glad we did. And it's a, uh, just so I get it straight, it's a 1981 Wilbur 38? Correct. Okay. Yeah. And Wilbur is a company that's been in business um, in Southwest Harbor, um, Mount Desert Isle, since 1973. Um, they haven't built a ton of boats, um, but it's they've all got the same DNA. You know, it's the lobster boat, Hull, think, you know, Jarvis Newman, Duffy, all the same sort of basic DNA. We were really a big fan of the single diesel and this one's got the original two-stroke Detroit in it, which is naturally aspirated. So, yeah, 40-year-old engine, you're, you're rolling the bones a little bit on that. But when you, it's not turbo, it's, it's, there's nothing fancy about the engine. You know, any mechanic that knows one end of a wrench from the other should be able to work on the boat. It's not a complicated right. engine. Um, yeah, so that's – that's but the, the whole that whole DNA, that aesthetic and that design um, is, is really what made us gravitate to the boat. Okay. I wanted to ask a little more about the the timing because I I don't need to tell you it's uh, it's an interesting time to buy a boat with demand yeah. being like it you know insanely high. Yeah, and like you said, you you had the Donzi. Why why now? If you don't mind me asking. So we're facing some health issues, specifically for me, that have made us really sort of um, refocus and and reevaluate. Okay, what what are we waiting for? I'm 58 years old. That's not old by any stretch. I don't feel old. But so the plan was initially, because we have been looking for a boat like this, but, okay. you know, we didn't really have a timeline. The idea was this nebulous plan. Okay, we're going to we're gonna get the Donzi to a point where she's ready to sell, which she basically is now, just needs to be dewinterized and cleaned up, yeah. um, and then go look for this, this other boat. But the health issue, you know, sort of made us think, well, maybe we don't wait. Because it's not like, mm-hmm. I mean, Donzi was paid for a dozen, dozen years ago. It's not like we're financially, that's not the issue. It's just who wants to be a two-boat owner? Sure. Well, you know, we don't necessarily want to be a two-boat owner. But as you say, in this market, if something comes up 
that you're interested in, if you hesitate, you're probably going to lose it. So that's that's the why now piece of this is a, the, the health. And then just what are we waiting for? Even besides that, you know, let's let's enjoy um, the type of boat that we want to be on. And and again, the sense of urgency was and, and I, I, I hate telling people this as a broker, but I say if you do, if you're really interested in that listing. You got to go see it, and if and if you if you're interested in it, get it on contract. Because if you don't, if it's a decent boat in good shape, it's going to be gone. Yeah. The inventory right now is so depressed. Right. You know, the bottom drawers, the boats have been on the market seven years. They're all still there, but the boats yeah. that come up that are old or new, um, newish that are in good shape, yeah, they just don't last. So all those factors together made us make this crazy decision to, to, to buy this boat that's in Sarasota, Florida and, and eventually get it up, get it up here to the bay. I mean, that that's amazing. And, and isn't it kind of that, that mentality that you think is also in part driving the big, the big surge. I mean, you know, I, I certainly thought when the pandemic started, we saw that initial surge that that first yeah. summer kind of during that lockdown phase, it's like, all right, this is just people pent up looking for a safe activity. But now that yeah. we've seen it continue to, just be insane right now um i feel like that seize the moment don't put life on hold you know philosophy is really widespread which is nice i think i i think it is too and and, and um it it as you say it, it hasn't stopped i mean demand is is still there i think people have gotten a taste of the freedom that being on a boat gives you especially if you're you know in terms of the whole you know, pandemic and so forth you know, there's no better way to social distance and all that stuff being out on a boat but it is i think it's that pent-up demand and people sort of recalibrating what is important in my in our lives right it's right. paying the bills it's taking an occasional vacation but what about that boat hmm. what even if we don't really know what we're doing let's go find somebody that knows what they're doing and help us get into this because if we don't do it now you know when are we going to do it and I, I think that that continues yeah. to this day i think it's yeah. going to continue that way and the problem is i mean it's a good problem to have but the problem is is as an industry we're we're not really really great at mm -hmm. the follow-up and the service and making sure people are being taken care of i mean we've got yeah. so much growth to do in that in that area but and you know production wise uh it, it's tough for for manufacturers to keep up it's tough for dealers to keep up but yeah that demand is there and i don't i don't see it going away right right no i i completely agree so you decided to to pull the trigger on this this Wilbur. Tell me a little bit about your pre-planned trip to Maine, because you you know the stars <laughs> the stars yeah. kind of aligned, and yeah. you you coincidentally found yourself at the Wilbur Yard in yeah. uh, Southeast Harbor, South Southwest, Southwest Harbor on Mount Desert Isle. Yeah, right next to Acadia. And I'm glad you brought that up because again, the timing of this it's not the way you would plan anything. So back in February of this year. My wife and I planned this RV trip to Maine, but she's right. from Maine. So we have okay. roots there. We, I was, you know, born in Boston. We've got roots up there. We wanted to go up to Acadia to an RV park and spend a while up there just sitting and, and you know, being in Maine and in, in an RV park. And so we, yeah. we locked that down way back in February and locked down the RV. And then once we got into whatever this was, July, when we found the trip was scheduled for September. Yeah. So we find the Wilbur in July. We get it on contract. We buy the boat, and with this whole realization that we, we're going to go do this RV trip, which we, we didn't cancel because the RV 
uh, was pretty expensive and not refundable, not completely right. refundable. So we're going to we're going to go do this trip and just, you know, we'll we'll, we'll figure it out. Hmm. And when we get up there and Darcy's looking at stuff to do and she's looking at this map and she goes, oh, Wilbur. And I said, what? And so I have to fully admit to, to you and anybody who's going to listen to this, my embarrassment as a professional yacht broker, uh, not knowing that Wilbur was right there, probably 10 miles from where, you know, where our RV was sitting in Southwest Harbor. Amazing. Amazing. So I called, I called and John Cashmar, who's now the owner of the company, uh, Lee Wilbur sold the company to his daughter and son-in-law, son-in-law John. Okay. Uh, 20 years ago. So he's been running the company since. And I called him up and I said, hey, um, so I just I just bought a Wilbur. He said, really, what is it? I said, it's a 1981 38. He said, uh, I can't remember exactly how the conversation goes, but he said something like a flybridge. I said, yes. And there was a pause for about five seconds. And he said, oh, yeah, we built that for Mr. Brooch. Hmm. So, I mean, that that level of of intimate knowledge of his product yeah. line and the fact that you know that they're not a mass production builder mm-hmm. every, every build is i guess pretty much semi-custom mm-hmm. but he knew right away oh yeah he knew the boat and so now he's finding out that okay so you're the fourth owner of the boat and i said can, we, can i come and visit just to visit you guys he said yeah he said sure. give me give me until tomorrow to see what files we have on the boat so yeah. i showed up the next day met john he was very 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 generous with his time and he we go up to his office and he pulls out this aging yellowed manila folder that's about three inches thick and plops wow. it down on the desk. Wow. He said, here's everything related to the build of your boat. And I was just absolutely gobsmacked at this. And I had to include uh, there's drawings in there. And, and this goes wow. back to the whole Westlawn thing and, and um, you know, having an appreciation for. So I have pictures of them, but I have a couple of pictures of there's there's two drawings. One is that there's a mm-hmm. profile and accommodations plan, which is. In the design spiral, you know, you have a buyer, you're building a boat for him. You want him to know what it's going to look like before you get too far down the road. So this profile and accommodations, you draw that up and you present it to make sure that, yep, that's that's you know that's what he wants, and we're moving forward. But these these this is this drawing was done in 1980. I mean, it's all done by hand, right? Um, and a competent designer draftsman could do a drawing like this in three or four hours, probably. I know it would take me you know days mm-hmm. to do a drawing like that, but but just being able to see that in this file and there's there's handwritten letters, there's type letters, there's bills of material. Mm-hmm. It was just I, I was just in a candy store looking through just, this thing. I, absolutely fascinated by it all. What a boat nuts dream to get all that, you know, original, <laughs> authentic paperwork. I, I know you must have totally geeked out. Oh, I did. I wanted it. I just, <laughs> and John said, you know, I can't give this to you. I said, no, no, no. I, I know that. I know. that. But I'm just, you know. I'm yeah. leafing through this file, and there was another drawing that included color, so it was a color rendition. Yeah. You know, today you, you do three clicks on a CAD program, and mm-hmm. here's your boat as it would look in Fiji at 1600. <laughs> the sun's going down with, with the palm trees in the background. It was none yeah. of that. So he, yeah. so they, they they put together a color rendition of a profile drawing, right? Because the buyer wanted it mostly white with with green um, green bootstripe and some accents on it, and so they they drew it up and and. Did it in color so that he could see all right this is this is what it's going to look like i have a picture of that one as well so yeah that so that whole impromptu thing but that it it, it sort of you don't plan that stuff to happen but it just mm-hmm. it was another one of those things that made you think yeah we were we were supposed to buy this book wow i love that <laughs> i i love that so now see so you took the boat from florida up to its home in maryland and is yep. that where the boat's home base will be the chesapeake Yep, Chesapeake Bay, in a, a little town called uh, Deal. It's just um, south of Annapolis on the western shore. 
but it's very convenient to us because it's it's a great yard where the boat is. Mm. Um, you know, one of the things about being a broker and spending a lot of time in the Mid-Atlantic is going to a lot of different yards or throughout, yeah. you know, on the Chesapeake Bay. And, and this place is Harrington Harbor is um, is just one of it's just a really first rate place. Plus, it's it's the shortest drive time from where I'm sitting right now to get to the Chesapeake Bay. So it couldn't be more convenient as far as location for us. So that's where the that's where the boat will uh, will stay. Okay, and then what you know, if you don't mind asking, what what are the goals for the boat? Are you, you know, long summer cruises? Want to stay more in the Chesapeake region? Any grand aspirations? Well, the grand aspiration would be to cruise it to Maine um, nice. and let it be in its home waters for a while, because cool. I, I would love to do that. And in fact, John Cashmar, he said, look, in 2023, we're having our 50th anniversary and we want to do an owner's cool. gathering. And I, he said, you need to cruise that boat up here. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> sounds great. Let's let's just let's just peel off four weeks on the calendar and say, yeah, we'll. We'll get it up. You know, it's an eight-knot boat. We're not going anywhere right. quickly. And I, and I would right, actually right. love to do that. And Darcy would love to do it. We, yeah, it would just be a, it would be a dream trip. And and you know, the boat, the t- t- to be able to see the boat in its home background would be just mm-hmm. in, incredibly cool. Because when yeah. I saw it in Sarasota, I said, "What is this thing doing in Sarasota?" And I mean, nothing against yeah. Florida. It just it no, looks right. so out of place down there. Yeah, you're I mean, right. it, it really it look it it would look great wherever it is, but it just it just seemed like it needs to go north. You know, let's let's yeah. Um, so that's 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 the that's that would be the, like the gold watch plan. Let's do something like that. But in in reality, um, we're going to do just a lot of at least initially just a lot of cruising in the Chesapeake Bay. Um, and okay. you know how it's such a rich cruising destination. You don't have to it go is. far to see new yeah. things every weekend on the bay. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly when you get into the Eastern shore and up the chop tank and, and away from some of the more populated areas, there's so many things to see and do. Um, but as far as the plans for the boat, I really don't have any plans for the boat other than to keep her unmolested. In other words, not mm-hmm. do anything radical to the boat. And just, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I view myself as a caretaker at this point of this boat. Yeah. It, it just needs to be looked after. You know, right. I can't own it forever. It's going to pass on at some point and I want to pass on what was passed on to me and and keep it as original you know god willing the creek don't rise as long as the as the as the guts and the internals of the boat are still good yeah uh, the engine and so forth to just keep her that way and um and keep up with the bright work dan that's that's my plan keep up i know the- that's you're gonna have your you're gonna have your hands full i don't need to tell you yeah. that that's here's um rebecca whitman's ah uh, the bright work companion yeah so a, a the classic funny thing, about, funny thing about that is as kids we did we did the sanding and staining on mm-hmm. if we were refinishing a boat as kids we were allowed to sand because that's not there's not a lot of talent there uh, to sand as long as you you know go the right way and everything and then stain the boat but my mother was the varnisher nobody mm-hmm. else touched the varnish brush so now i feel like okay the mantle is finally passing on and i'm going to yeah, be yeah. you know nervous with my with my with my brush and the varnish but um yeah keeping up with that will be will definitely be a labor of love that's that's so cool. Well, you know, we're going to show a picture of the boat, but it's uh, it seems to fit you so well. I mean, you're one of the the instances where the boat you know, just just fits the owner. It's a one of a kind, down east roots, reliable single, you know, yeah. single screw. It's uh, it, it's so cool to see. And Matt, I thought maybe we'd finish up. You've touched on it a lot, but I just like to know, like, you know, at this point in time, what has boating brought to your life, and and what do you hope that this Wilbur and boating will continue to bring to it? 
Wow. Yeah, not an easy one. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a tough. Well, it's not a tough question. It's a fair question, and it should be an easy question to answer. And um, bo- boating is the single best thing that I think I could ever do with any amount of free time. It's because it is like you see, it's it's the lifestyle, and it it doesn't need to be glamorous. It doesn't need to be expensive. It doesn't need to be anything. It just needs to be on the water, and if that's a sailboat or a powerboat, a small boat, a big boat. It doesn't really matter because being out there is where the magic is. And that's where you just feel the shackles come off. That's where you feel the weight come off your shoulders. You're with your friends. You're with your family. There's nothing you have to do. You're not at home, so you can't clean up the garage. You can't paint the house. You can't. You're just out there on the water and you being able to capitalize on that and enjoy that moment. Since I was a kid, that's the best memories of my life. And I don't think that's ever going to change. So. The Wilbur for us is just a, a continuation of, of of that gift, that the gift that keeps on giving of being on the water. It's just a latest iteration of us being able to go do that in a boat that fits this period of of our life. That's that that's really well said, Matt. And I think a a, a perfect a perfect segue to to wrap up here. It's it's been really fun talking boats with you and and looking at some of your pictures. I hope. We run into each other at a at a boat show or at least on the docks and and we can continue talking boats. This is this has been really fun, Matt. Uh been been great for me, Dan. Thanks. All right, I'll I'll talk to you soon. I'll see you out on the water. All right, cool. See you out there. Thank you for listening to the Power Motor Yacht Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor and leave us a review or rating. Or you can share us with your friends on social media or on the VHF. Anywhere you spread the word means a lot to us. Thanks again, and until next time, we'll see you on the water.